it's much more productive to to write at least four times a week for short times, even just an hour, mm-hmm. than clearing once a week a very long day. And this, this is all because, again, coming back to neuroscience, if a lot of creativity, major part of it comes from the gut, you've got to be in touch with this because then if you write often, in between you, things are cooking in your viscera, I believe. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. Joining me on the convo couch today is Dr Lee Kaufman, and I'm really excited to have Lee here to talk about her new book, the writer laid bear, who is a regular listener to the podcast, will know that I'm an absolute writing craft book junkie. And while this isn't strictly a writing craft book, it's part memoir, part a book about writing. There's plenty of, of great information in here for writers and for readers too. It's a really good insight into a writer's writing process. And Lee shares so many of her tips along the way. But let me tell you a little about Lee before we get to that. Lee is a Russian-born Israeli-Australian author of six books and an editor of two anthologies. She's a writing teacher and a mentor based in Melbourne. Her writing and reading life began a long time ago in a remote Siberian village where she recited her first poem to an admiring crowd of illiterate babushkas. What followed was decades of wrestling with the art and craft of writing and passionate reading. Lee is multilingual and has been published in Israel in Hebrew and since 2003 has been writing exclusively in English. She's the author of two memoirs, Imperfect, which was shortlisted for the Nib Literary Award, and The Dangerous Bride. She's also edited two anthologies of personal essays featuring prominent Australian writers, Rebellious Daughters and Split, both published by Ventura Press. Lee's numerous short stories, short creative non-fiction and poetry have been widely published in Australia, Scotland, the UK, Israel, USA and Canada. She's been involved in many literary awards and writing competitions as a judge or assessor, including Varuna Fellowships and the ASA Copyright Agency Award Mentorship Program. She's participated in many literary events and features as a panellist, panel moderator, feature speaker and lecturer. Lisa is a fantastic participant in the Australian literary community in many other ways. She's launched numerous books, was the blogger-in-residence for Writers Victoria for three years, and her blog about writing was a finalist for the Best Australian Blogs in 2014. It was also the origin of her latest release, the writing and reading guide, The, the Writer Laid Bare, Mastering Emotional Honesty in a Writer's Art, Craft and Life, which is the book we're going to chat about today. Lee is a font of wisdom on the writing life, and I'm really excited, as I said, to have her here on the Convo Couch to chat about the craft of writing. 
So, Lee, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. You have actually been on Rights for Women before, and I was trying to think, I think it might have been with Imperfect. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, great to have you back. Thank you. Really good to be back too. (laughs) It's been a little while since we've chatted, but the last week, and because I've been posting about it on social media, I have been devouring your fantastic book, The Writer Laid Bare. And I know that the origin of the book came perhaps from your blogs, obviously your experience in writing yourself and in teaching and mentoring. But can you talk to us a little bit to start with about where the origin of the book came from and that whole thing of putting it together. Sure, thank you. Yes, look, so the short and the long story (laughs) how the book came together, came about. The the short story is that I have a really wonderful publisher, Jane Carey, in Ventura Press, for whom I edited in the past two anthologies of personal essays by Australian writers. And about three years ago, she... Uh, summoned me to a meeting saying, I want to talk to you about your next book. And I thought, oh, great. Jane wants me to edit another anthology. So I came along prepared and I had some ideas. And she said, actually, you blog. So I've been reading it. And I think it will be great to develop into a book. And I was so rapt. Like, I've always thought, had this little shy dream, but maybe one day I'll do something with this blog. And I kind of felt, oh, who would want to and know my take on writing so all this sort of self-deprecating but when she said it was like a dream come true and at first I was ecstatic and this is where the longer story begins (laughs) (laughs) I was like oh my god but how do I turn a blog into a book because in my on my blog I was really I was not accountable to anybody I was just doing whatever I wanted so I had bits and pieces about like just humorous pieces a little bit satire on, on the literary life and different topics that I addressed and and so what do I do and this so there's so many writing books around as we sort of talked before this podcast mm. you and I we both collectors and lovers of books on writing so what basically Ed yeah, <laughs> yeah. I went and thought about it and then I remembered I actually started this blog I was actually initially blogging not on my website but I was a blogger in residence for Writers Victoria and I offered, I suggested this idea for a blog to them at the time when I was going through kind of personal crisis. So in my early 30s, I was really blocked. So I know that some writers don't believe it. Uh, writer's block is a real condition and mm. they're lucky because <laughs> they never had it. <laughs> if they've never had it, then yeah, they wouldn't believe yeah. it. But yeah, yeah I, I don't think I believe that that until it happened to me. But I did. I, had, I was actually blocked for about four years and it wasn't procrastination like you would it was like I wasn't writing or was lazy or something like this I actually wrote maybe even more than I write these days but I just didn't believe in anything that I was doing Uh, it felt really bad and I was not finishing bits and pieces or doing projects that were not right for me and I was right they didn't work but then some other material I put aside later I revisited and I did something with it and it actually worked I I published some pieces based so I started to blog just partly as a way out of this sort of Mm. how do you pronounce this hiatus creative yes that's it yeah yeah Yeah. and I thought and when I was thinking about this particular book and what I want to write about I thought actually I want to write a book the kind of a book I would have wanted to have then when I was suffering from writer's block. And my biggest issue with this block, so there were many reasons why I got a writer's block, which I won't be talking about now because... We'll yeah, I have got a question on that yeah. for you for later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
But one of the main things was, for whatever various reasons, I just really lost touch with my viscera. So not only, so I wasn't really honest in my writing at the time. So I was, and it's not like I was telling lies, but I was, I was writing, I wasn't nuanced in my thinking. So instead I was taking shortcuts, which is not honest writing. So instead of thinking what, how complex human emotions are, for example, I would just write things like she loved him or he felt Mm -hmm. sad, but what did it actually mean? Because Mm -hmm. love, sadness, all that, those emotions are so complicated. And I was also uh, kind of really horrified of writing what I really wanted to write which was at the time about my experiences of non-monogamy it was at the time when polyamory even was an award it was an award but not many knew it the way they do today and I also as a result of all that being not honest being not in touch with myself I also lost um, touch with my creative process of how it works so I was really working against my grades I thought I'll write a book like this I write a book about what does it mean writing with emotional honesty mm. and how this concept can help writers in their craft, but also so in what they actually create on the page, so the craft, but also in the process yeah. and even in how they live their lives. Because I think, as you probably would uh, know, as well as I do better than me, Pamela, uh, when you're a writer, you just can't separate, have a clear separation between your life private life and it's always there isn't it's always churning around and everything that you experience or come across in your life becomes potential fodder for your writing or and and that whole thing of going to bed and thinking about your story that's the last thing you think about at night often the first thing you think about in the morning as well isn't it absolutely and your loved ones don't understand it they want your attention (laughs) yeah exactly Yeah. So yeah. So that's really how this this um, idea of the book came to me. So this and once I sort of once it, the idea of emotional honesty clicked in my head, I thought, oh, okay, now I know which bits of my blog belong, which don't belong, what I need to expand, what gaps I need to address. So the book ended up being only loosely based on my blog. It's pretty okay. much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it became, I guess, then that culmination of well, pretty much everything that you've experienced and that you wanted to share about writing. Was it hard to distill that down, even though you still, you had that idea of emotional honesty, which is of of the thread that sort of ties everything in the book together, but it must have still been quite difficult to distill it down because it's such a big topic, isn't it? Yes, it was. It definitely was. So, for example, and there's, there's a lot I didn't intend to write a comprehensive how-to mm. guidebook to writing that sort of addresses everything in writing. For example, I don't actually have, a, I've got quite a lot of chapters in this book, but I don't have a chapter, for example, on uh, plot and structure. I do talk mm. about structure, but not in a sort of prescriptive way. I have a chapter with this called, I use the metaphor of cookie cutter. That's what yeah. I said. Yeah. 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 So, so, so I lose this of talking about structure, but not very prescriptively. So really what I did is, so yes, actually talking, speaking about cookie cutter, I use the concept of emotional honesty as a bit of a cookie cutter. And I just applied it to the door, which is the creative writing pro- process and, mm. and, and, and craft topics. And I thought, where does it belong? So what can I actually discuss through using this concept? And that's how I made those decisions, what goes in, what 
uh, stays out. There were quite a few chapters that actually I wrote and then uh, fully wrote, edited, revised everything and then discarded because they just did not fit. And you do have, I was going to mention this later, but it's a good time now. You do have a little section at the end, which is called Stoking the Flames. And as I was, when I saw that, I thought, I bet these are all the little bits that Lee cut, but then couldn't bear to just let go. Am I right? Ah, interesting. <laughs> I would like to say that's actually my pet part of the book. I'm glad you mentioned it, Pamela. So this is my epilogue. So I just thought, because I'm generally by nature, I'm an writer, I'm a, and I'm not saying this is a, as a compliment to myself because you can be a poetic writer and a very bad writer. So, But I am a poetic writer by inclination. And because the book is relatively to me, for me, for my style of writing, relatively orderly, <laughs> I just thought at the end, I want to, to go a bit crazy and just do whatever I want. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And give myself poetic license. So I just decided to end the book with what inspired, like ideas for inspiration, but not to write it in a sort of normal paragraph, by yeah. paragraph kind of storytelling way. But I just sort of put how many? I think about 14. Yeah, I think so. 16. Yeah. Yeah. So just 14, 16, sorry. Yes. 16 little bits of things that are like inspiration do you want me to read one very short one for example yeah that'd be great well otherwise it sounds a bit obscure so for example i write number five rachel carlson listened to beethoven his six sevens and nine symphonies she wrote to her lover made i'm quoting some little bit of his marvelous creativeness seep through into my brain cells and I just and that's it I'm just leaving it at her quote but this is just an idea of how we can actually get inspired through particular pieces of music mm. well, that was my kind of show not tell epilogue on the yeah book. yeah <laughs> I loved it I thought it was a great idea but I have jumped right to the end so let's go back to the beginning the book is divided into four parts so I thought we might just take a little bit of a look at each section uh, and talk about some of the things that really resonated with me. Because as I said, I had a pencil and I was underlining and making little notes in the margin, and which might horrify some listeners. Sorry about that. Oh, no, um, I, <laughs> I think we all do this, don't we? It has to be done. Part one is called Honesty in the Writer's Mind, and it's a, a fairly self-explanatory title, so it's looking at what's going on in our, our heads as writers. And it's all about this that idea phase on getting the initial words down, etc. And one of the things you say here, Lee, is, this is a quote, what matters is to be receptive to your more obscure urges and intuitions and then to follow them even if they don't make sense. Mm. So I thought, could you talk about that idea a little bit? Because sometimes I think writers do shy away from that. If they write something and they blurt it out and they think, oh, no, I can't write that, that, that really doesn't make sense. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's really a skill, isn't it, to learn to, to trust yourself? Mm. Because I'll start by saying that, there's a lot of neuroscience. I'm interested in the research, the intersections, so the research of neuroscience into creativity, so the intersection between science and creativity, really. And I'll, there's a lot of it in the book, and the, there's a lot of research to back up what many writers over centuries kept saying persistently, that most of the creative process actually happens in our gut. Mm. And But we as, as writers in the Western sort of science-minded society, we're very into logic, aren't we? But yeah. I find that my best bits are indeed the bits, bits, as you said, like the things that don't make sense to me initially. Mm. And sometimes I write something, I think, oh, my God, this is so weird. Who would even <laughs> want to do it? And then this ends up being the sort of the bits where readers respond the strongest. And sometimes... I think our subconscious knows far before us 
what needs to be in the work we're doing. So I give an example in the book, if I may repeat it. Mm, <laughs> when I was so my when I was writing my third novel, which I was in Hebrew, that's why nobody probably read it here, of course. <laughs> my first three books were fiction; they were in Hebrew. When I was writing it, I, I said this, that novel in the late 1990s, which is when I was writing it in Tel Aviv, very sort of contemporary novel set in the night nightlife scene, mm. and then very gritty and then this image of uh, just fun day this character came into my mind and she was from early 20th century she was russian russian jewish she was gay and my protagonist in my novel was not gay it was really weird but i really had a fully formed i was she just wouldn't leave my head and i was so pissed off <laughs> i was thinking what's going on I want to finish this novel. I don't want another novel. <laughs> Just go away. Don't annoy me now. <laughs> exactly. So, so I, I wrote a few notes about her. Her name is Christina. And I put her aside, those notes. But images kept recurring to me. I just wanted to write about chandeliers, the kind of chandeliers you find in Russian ballrooms or whatever. Anyway, it was all very weird. <laughs> and then I tried to, I really was working hard on ignoring my subconscious. And then one day I just wrote something, which again, as, as you were saying, Pamela, it just came out of nowhere and I wasn't, I just let myself write it down. And that was something along the lines of Laura, who was my contemporary, gritty, Tel Avivian protagonist, Laura saying something about looking at the photos of her grandmother, Christina. I didn't even think it through logically, it just came out. And then I knew that's her great-grandmother. And of course, her story was extremely important to Laura because Laura's intimate life was a mess. <laughs> she was totally mm. uh, at a loss. And uh, Christina was like the kind of a ghost that was um, always hovering over her personal life because she was killed for her sexuality at the time. Yeah, so I ended up writing Christina into this novel and the novel ended up actually being called I Will Love Christina. So it ended up giving her her name. Yeah, so this is what I mean. And I'm so glad that I actually trusted my instinct that particular Mm. time. Yeah, yeah. That's such a gift really, isn't it? It's something that you thought was a distraction and a bit of an annoyance ended up being a real gift. Absolutely. But it's something with some writers, I suppose, they're much better than me and they just know this instinctively, but that's what they need to do. Mm. But for me, and this is partly why I wrote this book, for me, it was never that clear cut. I never was confident enough to trust my subconscious. And that's why I wanted to bring these things to, because some writers, some of us, myself included, do need to be reminded. Yes, me too. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. What sort of conditions do you think the we need as writers to allow that sort of blossoming, I guess, of ideas in the subconscious? I'm sighing is because <laughs> I'll say what they are, but they're very incompatible with having families. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of us who do have families, I would know, or maybe their children are not grown up yet or whatever, will know how hard it is. But generally speaking, I think I see daydreaming as a must be for writers. And look, I'm not the first one who said it, you know, Freud had the whole mm-hmm. essay, mm-hmm. writers and daydreaming. But yeah, we really need to allow ourselves that those spaces where we do things that nurture this daydreaming. I think we need to find some kind of languorous existence, like those concubines in Matisse's <laughs> 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 Yeah, 
<laughs> very hard in the modern life with all the arrangements. <laughs> but I think we do need to deliberately create those even very short-lived oases mm. uh, in our life as much as we can. It can be whatever works for it. That's why I have this little epilogue section with this weird 16 kind of ideas of how to get those oases. But it can be anything like just lie down and read poetry or like, like recline on a cushion mm. or, holidays or just sit and look at the sea or things like this. Now, I don't have that luxury anymore because I have two small children. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, many other people, many most writers I work for a living as well. But I do try still to create those oasis. They're just much shorter than they normally would. So it can be things like going for a walk. Mm. and not listening to an audiobook, which is very tempting. Yeah, because yeah, fill, we're filling our brains. I do too much of that, too many podcasts, audiobooks, things like that, not allowing that space for your mind to just wander. Absolutely. And another thing I think that can work really well, even if you're not, if, even for people who are not owl, night owls like I myself, mm. but I think I really do believe that night, darkness, silence, all those sort of stuff, it does churn our brain. I think really weird things come out if you manage to sometimes stay up really late. Yeah. yeah. Dogs, children, grandparents, whoever it is, went to sleep. Those hours can be very precious. And you don't have to write and spend time like work, stay up really late and to write and kill yourself or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can ju- just if we sometimes can afford those one or two nocturnal hours just in the silence of the house, daydream or sit at the computer or whatever, longhand writing and sometimes that sort of stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think there's some great ideas there. Music too, I always find is something, even like music without lyrics, but music with lyrics too. And and particularly music I find from my younger years, things that sort of take you back and they can really spark just different emotions and things from your youth, I find. I was just about to say the same. This is mm. so interesting. So what can you give me an example of what would be a, a, there's a There's a fantastic song that I, I love, Boys of Summer, Don Henley. Mm-hmm. Do you know that song? And it's got this really quite long guitar-y type intro. And it was around at the time when I used to hang around at the beach a lot with my girlfriend who's since passed, passed away about six years ago. So there's a lot of things caught up with it. But just the vibe and the mood of the way that song captures summer and, and captured it at a time when I was young and hanging out at the beach and all that sort of thing. It's just such an evocative song for me. Well, just as you're talking about it and you're bringing up your girlfriend, I'm starting to think, oh, story, book, yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I really, yeah, I get it. I'm saying, like, I listen to The Doors or Led Zeppelin, that's sort of my youth and it does really transport you somewhere, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to keep, Finding, knowing things or once you discover something like that does really work for you in terms of bringing things up from either your past or your subconscious or whatever. I think just like you say, carving out little times where you can just sit down and just listen to music or just sit down and listen to the birds or whatever. Yeah, and I feel like we're being very wholesome, but there's a whole tradition of writers who took drugs and, mm. and do, you know, and alcohol and things for this. And I, and again, I'm not against anything. I think whatever works for you, yeah, you know, demons or muses or whatever yeah. it is. But uh, yeah, there's so many ways you can do it. In fact, one of the things I write in that epilogue is I'm talking about a poet. I can't remember his name now, but he used to take this particular medication. Uh, even when he didn't need it, uh, yep. kind of, it it's the kind of medication that makes you really woozy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take it when you have fever or something, and so that used to be his gateway to to poetry. Okay, yeah. 
I'll have another look back at that. You also touch, Lee, on your own process in the book, which is to write the first draft fairly quickly and then to spend a much longer time redrafting. And you also talk about a process called layering. So can you talk a little bit about those things, your drafting, redrafting and this layering process that you use? Sure, of course. And I just want to sort of preempt and quickly just say that one of the main recurring ideas in my book is that there's no one right way. And that's why mm. I'm a bit allergic to books that go, you know, like 10 steps to creating your best yeah. <laughs> I just don't think it works. It works for some people for whom this sort of process is organic already, but it's not going to work for many others. And really the biggest skill that a writer can have is to, and I wish I had it at the time when I was blocked, is to work out by trial and error what is the organic process mm-hmm. what works for them best. So uh, most of the writers I know, and I'm curious about you, Pamela, where you see there is most of the writers I know, they either really they dislike writing first draft and love revision or the opposite they love writing the first draft and then they dislike revision some some writers may like both or dislike both but I think most of us do have a preference Mm. what about you definitely revision for me I I much prefer revision I find I I usually have an initial burst with the draft and oh that's a great idea I'll start with that but because I'm not much of a plotter I don't really outline very much and then I'll get stuck and then I just find it excruciating. I just, I want the draft done, but I find the drafting process really difficult. But once I've got it there, I love that process of playing with it and refining it and deleting and adding all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm totally with you. And I think it's something to do. Maybe I don't know what you think, but to me, it's probably something to do with how much we can tolerate uncertainty. So I am not very good at tolerating uncertainty. So that's why I would rather have a terrible draft to play with, but I'll have something that makes me mm. feel more. Even if later on I'll rewrite it completely and redo this, which often I do, it's just having some words. So sometimes to cure my fear of the first draft, I even plagiarize from myself. Right. <laughs> yeah, I and paste my other works just to see something on the page and then can I complete but that's how I am so really uh, what I'm saying in the book is that the trick I think for writers is to identify what is the stage they love what they don't like and mm. the stage they, they don't like to get through this as quickly as possible so me being a first draft hater I often don't even stop and think too much I just make myself tap 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 and I tap lots of rubbish <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I much rather have rubbish and then and then I start revising it and, and knocking it to shape and then my, then my fun begins and I really enjoy the process. Whereas for writers who are the opposite, for I know a lot of writers who actually work exactly the opposite. They love the uncertainty, they trust the imagination, but they totally hate then later mm. to to make the changes. Uh, so I suggest writers like this to work in a way that Annie Dillard works. Annie Dillard, to those who don't know, she's a very highly regarded American writer, mostly nonfiction writer, but also novelist. And she wrote this cute little book called On Writing. That's a great book, yeah. Yeah. Is that, am I right? Is it, is it called? Is it called it's Stephen King's On Writing. I'm just trying to think. Is ah. Annie Dillard On Writing as well? I'm looking or The for Writing you. Life. Is it The Writing yeah, the, Life? Yeah, the, the Writing Life. That's yeah. right. The yeah. Writing Life. Thank you, Pamela. Great. Yes. So in this little book, she describes your writing process which for me would be torture but for people who have first draft it's perfect so she doesn't she really polishes her work 
sentence by sentence. And although it's laborious, but then you don't have to have a lot of revision once you still, so you spend most of the time at the stage that you love and you create a story. With writing as layering, I think it's a more universal is not is a bit pompous word but it, it's the kind of thing that i think most writers can apply to their craft and again it's i call it writing is layering but it's by no by all means it's not my idea of how to do it i'm just rephrasing something with a lot of yeah, writers yeah. intuitively anyway but it really helps me to think about writing as a layering process or to say to myself all writing is rewriting because I'm a perfectionist. Mm. And that's how I learned to write my first drafts quicker because I keep saying to myself, don't worry, all writing is rewriting. It can be really helpful for us to take pressure from ourselves to expect that our early drafts will have everything going on in them. And so I outlined sort of in much more detail in the book how I would suggest to go about it. So you start by writing your first draft and then you, when you rewrite, you rewrite it, you look at this it's like you're putting layer upon layer. So the first layer, so you start from big structural issues and then you zoom to smaller things. So you, so say your third draft, for example, might be all about just getting your characters more fleshed out mm. and not worrying about anything else. And then the next draft might be all about getting your dialogue. And of course, it, it never works exactly like this. Thing. Yeah, there's always an overlap, isn't yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's all, but I think just big in a big picture to try and to take pressure off yourself as much as possible, not to expect to achieve too much in every draft you do. Now, there's some really great advice in there on that, I think, Lee. And as you say, you're sharing what works for you, yeah. you know. And I think that's right what you were saying earlier too, because like you, I am a big writing craft book junkie. You can't take on board everything that you read about how to write, just like anything else in life. But you pick and choose the things that you think, oh, that might work for me. That sounds like a great idea. Try that. If it doesn't work, you know, there's plenty of other options out there. Yeah. Yeah. The other one of the other things you talk about in your book is this importance of being in touch quite often with your work and maintaining that touch. Now, and you talk about taming the lion. I think that might be the, the chapter heading there. Yes. Um, maybe this is a good time to talk about that period of writer's block that you had. And as we said, some people claim it doesn't exist, but I think you are definitely living proof. And, and I can say that I've experienced bouts of it as well. But this idea of staying in touch with your work fairly often, has that come out of your experience of writer's block and, and how is all that connected for you? That's a great question. I just want to say quickly that this idea of taming the light, it's actually from Annie Dillard as well. Okay. You know yeah. how you not to take everything on board from every writing book? Exactly. So when I was reading Annie Dillard, when she talked about perfecting every sentence with, before she moves to the next one, that totally did not work for me. Mm. Uh, it's actually partly what I was doing while I was blocked. I was trying to perfect every sentence. Okay. But she has this really beautiful metaphor when she says, a work is a feral thing. It's like a caged lion. If you don't visit it every day, the next time you'll come, you'll go in the cage. So I'm paraphrasing poorly, but that's yeah, that. Yeah, no, next you time you go into the cage, it will grow really feral. It will eat you up. Yeah, so look... Um, I actually, this idea of writing often, which I think is really use, can be very useful for writers, it didn't come to me from the, the experience of writer's blog. It came to me through rethinking re my whole creative life. So, because okay. I started writing books really early. My first book was published when I was 20, 20 or 21. And I think it was a mistake. It was a bad book. I don't really think that nobody should be writing book, writing book that early. Maybe there are some geniuses out there as an exception. I'm not one of those. Anyway, so I started writing really early and I've written 
quite a lot and I've always been relative, at least with short pieces, I was relatively prolific. With longer books, I'm not. It takes me years to write a book. But I, I've always also written with really great difficulty, especially when it comes to creative major sort of works. And I think it's because of fear. And I'm not talking about this completely in the past. I still have those mm. feelings. Mm. less lesson because <laughs> but they're there but I've always was terrified of failure as a writer and so I was terrified of thinking of myself as a writer because you know it's so easy to fail as an artist in any art form mm. so to escape this identity to escape this failure all my life I prioritized writing. It's it's really paradoxical because I started writing really early. I've written since I was eight. I started publishing like 16 articles, published my first book at 20. But all my life I was trying not to write and I was trying to prioritize writing really low. So I would always do it among many different other commitments. I used to run my own business. I did lots of degrees, more than I needed. I had the, several different careers in my life. Yeah. Busy, social, whatever, social life, whatever. Writing was always one of the priorities on the bottom, paradoxically, even though it was something I've always lived for. Mm. Um, and that's because I was scared to fail. So the reason I wrote a, lo- a lot of my works with great difficulty was because I just wasn't in touch enough with them. And then when I was doing my PhD, which was actually when I was sort of experiencing the writer's block, I started. That's how partly I got out of the writer's okay. block. PhD wasn't so far. PhD was a great, huge, challenging project, very hard. But it wasn't bound with my ego the way the writing is. So if I would fail in PhD in academic writing, well, I failed. It's not a big yeah. I have other things to fall on. Whereas with writing, if I fail, it's the end of the world for me. The PhD was in social sciences, by the way, it was not in, in creative writing. So when I was writing, working on the PhD, I did prioritize it high because I want to finish it and I wasn't scared of it so much. I wrote every day and it was much easier because I was in touch with what I was doing. I didn't need to, every time I sat down at the computer to remember what it's, what am I doing, to feel it, to be connected. I was connected mm-hmm. to it every day. And then I thought, oh, I should transfer this practice to my writing as well. And it worked really well. Since then, I really came to believe that at least maybe not for everybody, but I think for most writers, I have a lot of these conversations with my writing peers and with my students. It's much more productive to to write at least four times a week for short times, even just an hour, mm-hmm. than clearing once a week a very long day. And this, this is all because, again, coming back to neuroscience, if a lot of creativity, major part of it comes from the gut, You've got to be in touch with this because then if you write often in between you, things are cooking in your viscera, I believe. I think that's really great advice. And I've done the same thing. I've had long periods where I just, and I know it's from fear and I know it's that whole thing about what if it's not good enough, what if it fails, all that sort of thing. So I know that is what keeps me away from the writing a lot of the time. But it is so much easier to stay connected to what you're writing if you're visiting it often. And the other thing I find is that you're generating more ideas either on that particular thing that you're writing or could be on something completely different that starts to come up because you are in contact with that creative brain. Absolutely. And you sort of think, oh, I'll just write for an hour. How much can I accomplish in an hour? Even four times a week, it's still only four hours. But then what happened? What happens is in between those short sessions, for me, a lot of the time I just, sentences come to me, ideas come to me, as you say, Pamela, in just whenever, like I can drive a car, I can go for a walk, I can have a shower, mm. I can 
try help my child with his homework and ideas will come and I'm recording them. I would record them straight away so I don't lose them. So actually I end up writing much more than four hours. I write in between a lot. It just doesn't, it's not this formal sitting in the computer writing time. Yeah. So really productive, even with very short uh, sessions. Do you think that you've changed your idea of success and failure as well over the years? Like, it's such a subjective thing, isn't it? What is a successful author? What does it mean to fail at writing? Do you think that's changed for you as well over the years and maybe that has, you know, changed the way that you approach your writing? Yes, I certainly, I want to say yes, it's not exactly so <laughs> clear cut, uh, but I have lowered my expectations and it, that helps. That really makes me happier when I write. But there's so many ways to also measure writerly success, isn't mm. it? By how much, how many books you sell, by what kind of publisher you have, by reader responses, reviews, what hotel you get at the Rangers Festival, <laughs> Stars Hotel, do you have a little motel? <laughs> the writers love really played with this little humiliation. It really helps me to be very clear on, on what. Uh, I consider to be success and not to expect to succeed on every every mm. level. But it, look, it's I'm not I'm not an enlightened writer. <laughs> I have a lot of moments of fear of failure. Of course I do. I just I think I just handle them better because I suppose since my writer's block ended, which I would say more or less maybe 14 years ago, I just never was stuck for ideas anymore. And I think if I can frame this as a success. Yeah. So I, I have just so many things that I want to express. I think that helps me a lot. Yeah. So yeah. being in touch with my ideas is what I really want to write. Because when I was blocked, I was constantly feeling that what I want to write is not going to be read by, by people who won't be interested in what I want to write. That was my belief. It's those persistent, stupid beliefs you have in your head. And I need to write books that i supposed to write, but I need to please the audiences by finding particular topics that may appeal to them and may be popular at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think so I had all those sort of really unknown productive ideas. And and since the blog ended, I really took off myself this pressure of writing books that will appeal. And I really, what I'm focusing on is writing books that will appeal to me, but I really want to get out of my system. Yeah, yeah. And then they find their readers, don't they? Hopefully. Part two of the book, Lee, is about honesty on the page. And one of the things that you talk about is something that we're all familiar with as writers or we're certainly familiar with the term, and that is voice. Mm. Um, and I know it's one of the things that, you, like you, I teach writing as well, and you'll often people say, but, but how do you find your voice? How would you answer that question? Oh, my gosh, I need six-hour class to find. <laughs> okay, short version. I, I'll just say this, that unfortunately there's good news and bad news i start with bad news it's always better <laughs> the bad news is that writers was i don't believe it's a, like an object that you found it and mm. you got it put it on the shelf and that there it is finished leave, lives there it's something that is i find at least in my practice it's always a work in progress especially because writers voice really it's a right it's, it's us it's it's really what writers voices is like how do we express on the page our uniqueness as individuals? Mm. Everybody is unique. I, I honestly, like, when I used to be a therapist and 
I would get people come to me who like look like very average Joe types. But once you start talking to them deeply about stuff that matters to them, nobody is the same. Anyway, that, that's a digression. <laughs> but as we go through life, we also change and we evolve. And, and I think the writer's voice needs to reflect it too. So that's also another reason why voice does change. So the question was, how do you develop it? So there's lots of different strategies. Again, it's in the book. It's a lot to talk about. But mm. I think... I suppose if I were to nail it in one sentence, the, the biggest trick that the writer needs to develop their voice, I think, is to connect to how the internal monologue is working. Because this is where we usually, the most honest and truthful, most mm-hmm. unlikely to follow social conventions. Speaking of social conventions, it's very easy to write things like the sky is blue, but is it really blue always? And, and I'm thinking about also, so I was born in Russia, okay? And in Russia... When you read children's books, they say that the dogs say, Gav. Then I moved to Israel. In Israel, dogs apparently say, how? Whereas in Australia, they say, woof, woof. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Different languages. Or we listen in different countries differently because we have our cultural sort of convention. So do you know what I mean? So I suppose to me to find your voice is about to listen very carefully, how do you actually, what what does the dog say to you? Yeah, yeah. What do you hear when you listen? (laughs) That's a great example, actually, yeah. But there is, as you say, there there is a really great chapter in there on voice and I think that's that was particularly one that spoke to me. And the other thing that's always talked about in writing circles is this idea of character. You'll hear people say, oh, but I have to make my character more likeable. A publisher will like them and then the the reader will like them. But what's your take on that one? I think this is a very good way to kill your book like this. Because if you look at uh, masterpieces that survived at times and they're still read and, and praised and feel contemporary still, I don't think the characters are usually very likable. Think about Madame Bovary. Think about mm. Lolita, the pedophile right there's so many examples i can go on and on i just think it's really important to remember that a compelling character should not be confused with the kind of character we would like to have at home for dinner although i must say i don't even want a nice character very nice so boring we'll talk about the weather all night (laughs) yeah i think for me i think a flawed character is much more interesting than a likable character absolutely And, and when we talk about flaws once again i I think there's a lot of sort of, uh, when you go to sort of writing courses, or teachers often say to you, hey, it like, sounds like a recipe. Yeah, I give you character flow. But often writers sort of go safe about it. Mm. Uh, I'm talking about beginning writers, not about, you know, published books necessarily. But often writers who are scared, and I used to be like this too, they tend to pick those cute flaws that... It's a bit like when you go for a job interview and, and, and you, you ask, what is your weakness? You always want to get to, to find a weakness that puts you still in a good light. Like, oh, yeah, I'm a workaholic. I work too many hours. That's my flaw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think really, truly compelling characters are characters that, that feel authentic. And in real life, the good and the bad are so complexly entwined. Mm-hmm. And as we saw in the example of Nazi Germany, perfectly nice and respectable people kept of such monstrosities and you don't need to go there that far there's Nazi time just, just even looking around us so I think I think a good writing truly good writing that compels readers acknowledges the demons that we all carry to some extent and the same is true for the characters that might be perceived as the villain or whatever in the story isn't it but yeah. like, there's no really black and white yeah. there's all these shades of gray and that's what is makes a character interesting to explore I think Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So this idea of the and and this is how I this is how for me I often sort of 
quickly get the sense of what book is worth reading and what is not. If I feel that I can tell very quickly who the good and who the bad is, that I stop reading. There's mm-hmm. nothing for me. Mm. If I'm thinking in, in television terms, because I think the television is so amazing at the moment with the TV series, with the characters there, oh my God, it's, we live in a golden age of this. So if you think about Game of Thrones, where characters start very bad and then to, suddenly you start liking them despite yourself or the vice versa, start very good and or Breaking Bad or those sort of mm. things, then it's not for nothing that it's so popular because the screenwriters really let themselves to explore the depths of human psyche and how what are uncomfortable creatures mm. we are really mm. and i think it's morally also more uh, it's a much better ethical position as a writer to be honest about the extremes that humans contain because otherwise readers read your book and they go oh i think sorry i think it, i'll say it in a more positive way sort of if you create a complex character and you show the bad and the good urges that we all have but perfectly nice people can have also very strong desires to to harm and to, to do mm. other things, uh, but they're not necessarily act on them. That's the thing. Then we also, I think we're doing a favor to our readers because they can see themselves in it and say, I'm actually not that weird. It's not because there was a psychological study. Now I can't remember for life of me the exact statistics, but somehow psychologists sort of tried to make a certain what percentage of people have ever contemplated uh, seriously contemplated murdering somebody and the the numbers are astounding it was something like in the 80s <laughs> about 80 something <laughs> I told about this in one of my classes one day uh, when I was teaching about characters and I said yeah I teach you so more than 80 percent of people have ever seriously contemplated murder and one of my students said I actually tried Okay. I actually was in jail. I was like, okay, I should not should always tell this story. <laughs> There's proof for you right in that classroom. Yeah, yeah. That just reminds me actually of one of my yeah, characters. No, sorry, she was very nice. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember in one of my books, a friend read one of my books and said, I just didn't understand when your character, your main character, said she really hated her husband. I, you know, I could never, I would never think that about my husband. And I just looked at her like, really? Oh, <laughs> You've never had a moment you. where you absolutely hated him? I just think we're all, we've got all those emotions, whether you want to admit it or not. I think we've got those emotions in us. I, I was quite surprised that she hadn't and good luck for her if she hasn't. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not such a saint, unfortunately. Oh, no, no, I totally relate. I, love yeah. <laughs> I totally read to those moments where you can feel very passionate hater, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. and they're two sides of the same coin, aren't they? The, another thing that really struck me, another little line in your book, Lee, was where you're talking about dialogue, which is, of course, a very important tool in our writing kit. And I loved this. I'm going to steal this from you if you don't mind. You said, my own rule whenever I write conversation is to ask myself, this is you writing in the book, if I overheard this, would I keep eavesdropping? If the answer is no, I usually delete it. I think that's mm-hmm. such a brilliant way for analysing your dialogue and deciding what to keep and what to cut. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of um, books where there are, especially unpublished books, where the writers use dialogue as a crutch and mm. they just use it for everything. If they need to say that the characters moved from A to B, they will just say, so let's go. In this direction, also, it's so and really like to use dialogue to just move forward, to move the action forward. This is a very boring device. Mm-hmm. You just don't need it. We, we have the luxury of just taking out. It's a confidence, I suppose. It's a skill that we learn. Yeah. 
just move next to the next section of the book. The heart mm. is already there and they don't need to discuss it. And It's about trusting that the reader can fill in the gaps too, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Otherwise, how boring it would be for me. In real life, our conversations are often so tedious. So this yeah. is really, the, 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 I think there's quite a few different purposes for dialogue and writing, but I think the main one is to um, deepen characterization. It's mm. our opportunity to make the character say something witty, something revealing, something interesting about the words. So those are the bits that really, I think, worth keeping. Mm. There's the generation for that. Yeah. I love that little eavesdropping tip. It was great. You mentioned before we talked about uh, structure. How is this idea of honesty in the writing connected to the structure and shape of your work? So you talk about using that as a way to help structure the book. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I found that really interesting. Thank you. Again, it's a very long and complex discussion, Mm. but to try and really do it justice in a couple of sentences, I and this is where it comes to emotional honesty. So I really think best books are written, and not just books, but short works as well. Best works are written because the writer doesn't want to teach somebody something or to convey messages, but they want to resolve something for themselves. Mm. And what they want to resolve for themselves is not going to be necessarily the same thing the reader would want to resolve. So you may write a murder mystery, for example, and the reader would want to know, so who was the murderer? But the writer may write this murder mystery because they want to understand the role of evil in our psyche and why some people manage to put it aside and others not in those instincts. So this is where structure, so this is where the interplay between emotional honesty and structure comes. So I think once you're honest with yourself about why you're writing this particular work, so if you're writing the particular work really urgent to you, it's really important to understand why, be honest with yourself, why it's urgent to you. What, what is it that drives you to spend years and so many hours a day to, 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 on, on this uh, manuscript? Why do you want to write it? Is it really urgent to you? If yes, then why? Once you find that question, then it's easier to find the structure as well, because then the whole work is meant to answer this question. So I know this sounds very abstract. So I'll give you just a quick example of from my work. So my first book in English, my first memoir called The Dangerous Bride is about my misadventures, non-monogamy. And what I wanted to find for myself in this book, it was, so I've always wanted to have non-monogamous relationships since I was a teenager, but I struggled to find a partner who would be wanting the same thing as me. And then finally I found two different partners, one after another, not at the same time, who were also willing to explore this idea of non-monogamous love. And then I felt spectacular in those relationships. So when I started writing this memoir, I already knew that those relationships didn't work. The readers didn't necessarily. So they would find the narrative how they those relationships didn't work and why they ended. But I, I started writing this book to answer that, that question I didn't have answer for, which is why it didn't work. So... Once I knew what was my main point, I knew where to start. So I started this memoir from describing a heightened scene where I enact non-monogamy, tried for the first time in one of those relationships, and it's fun, and it's exciting, and things are good. And then, of course, things <laughs> go from good to, to worse and worse progressively. Because I knew what I was exploring, I knew how to structure the book. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I know it's, very yeah. com- it's, it's a complex topic quickly. And do you but think the same thing applies to fiction, Lee, to writing absolutely, fiction? Absolutely. So I think a very good beginning 
of a bull works on two levels. On f- the first level is it creates some kind of tension for the in terms of narrative for the reader to keep asking, so what happens next? What will this character decide to do next? Or things like this. But on the other hand, I think really good beginning should also be emotionally honest and make a contract with the reader. There is a theme in this book and how it's going to be resolved. So if I'm thinking about The Great Gatsby, which is one of my favorite ever novels, uh, I'm using it as an example because I think many of the listeners probably would. The start of The Great Gatsby is, this novel is narrated not by Great Gatsby, but by the, by the narrator, by his friend, Nick. So at the very start, he creates this tension and, and talks about the really heart of this novel by, in a very mellow way, it's not like a very dramatic beginning, but basically he begins the novel by saying that his father gave him an advice when he was young that he found really helpful. And the advice was every time you want to judge somebody, think twice and, and think about where they came from and what is their background. And it's really beautiful because it foreshadows, first of all, the whole story of Great Gatsby, mm. who came from a very poor background and he's a self-made man. And that explains a lot of his actions such as his obsession with Daisy, who is this golden girl. But it also set up this tension. Nick clearly wants to judge someone. What is he going to judge them for? What is What did this great Gatsby do? Yeah, yeah. This whole moral, but also action-wise, sort of enticement in this, in this beginning. Somebody's about to misbehave, already misbehaved. The narrator wants to judge them. What is going to happen? So it's, it's a really great setup, emotionally honest setup, but really predicts the themes of this fictional work. Mm. Mm, oh, it's such a good book. And just reading when you mentioned it in The Rider Laid Down, I thought I must read that again. It's been quite mm-hmm. some time. We could talk all day um, and we are going to have a little chat, a quick chat for the Patreon supporters of the podcast. But before I let you go, you did have an article. I didn't actually get to read the article, but it was in the Sunday papers on the weekend, which was fantastic to see such a, a great full page spread on, on your book. And it was, I gather, talking a lot about this chapter that you have in the book, The Pram in the Hallway. And that particular chapter title comes from English critic Cyril Connolly's contention that there is no more sombre enemy of good art than the pram in the hallway. (laughs) And, of course, you were a writer long before you had children, but this chapter in the book addresses this whole issue or, or talks about for you how the experience of motherhood has impacted on your writing and how you've dealt with that. Could you talk a little bit about that before we wrap up? Sure. Actually, this article, you don't even need to read it because all it is, it's it just edited excerpt from this chapter. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. So everyone just look, buy the book instead. Yeah. Look, on a personal level, it's a long story, which I won't tell now, of course, but I just, I can just mention that there's a very big crossover between the fact that I'm a mother and, and the fact that I'm a writer because I delayed motherhood until I was, I had my first child when I was almost 40. And it was mostly, there was a combination of reasons, but mostly because I just worried that I can't be an artist if I have a child. And yes, I was partly influenced by Cyril Connolly. Yeah. <laughs> he did scare a lot of us sort of women. Right? <laughs> and how incompatible parenting is with, I think it may be fathers too. Yeah, parenting and, and creative work. And also I've got my both children still young and they both have special needs. And it's been always really hard for me to juggle. Because every, well, every child is a very hard work, but with special needs, it's adds more another layer of yeah. difficulty there. But the paradox, what I discovered after having children, and it's not like I have a happy ending resolution here. And not, it's not yeah, like, but, yeah. but I did to both surprise to understand it took me some years to understand this that 
as much as my kids made my writing life more difficult because of course no time for daydreaming or writing snatches and etc they also made me more efficient i used to procrastinate so much i used to love all the self-loving fear of failure i still have it to some extent but i think partly my children also cured my writing blog because i just don't have the luxury of this the time for this thing if i have 10 minutes to go and write this point i open the laptop and i just type whatever i type because in a minute my child will come and will want me to yeah to give, you know i don't know <laughs> time becomes more precious yeah yeah it's much more precious yeah now i'm even capable of opening my laptop and writing as i wait in the car to pick them up from school which is ridiculous 10 minutes but i can do it not that I produce a very good writing, but something that later I revised. Mm. But it's also, I also took me time to realize that my writing actually, is, as much as I feel a lot of guilt about leaving my children to write, and there are times when they're like really truly dogs, you're scratching the door of my study. <laughs> and I feel terrible. But I also know that when I don't write, I'm, I'm less happy. I, I miss particular type part of myself, and that makes me much more jittery mm. and uh, not fun mother. And actually, right because it's sometimes life in our house is really difficult. My older son is on a spectrum, and he has quite difficult behaviors. But I need like really it's daily sort of management. Actually, writing comes me down, centers me, so I can then when he has tantrums, I can be much more centered and abroad. Mm. Whereas if I don't write, I'm very frustrated and it's not good. So writing actually does in some weird way helps me to parent, which is very, so Cyril Connolly clearly didn't, you know, did not experience those things. No, he didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and another thing I wanted, I was, I think one of the main ideas in that chapter for me was, because uh, it wasn't just a chapter about me, it was a lot about me, but I also think it was one of the more personal actually chapters in, in the book, but and the hardest one to write because I find it so difficult to write about my children, thinking they will read it one day, probably yeah, they both yeah. read those, you know. Anyway, my little one already wants to read it, he's only six, but he's trying to <laughs> <laughs> um but this intersection between parenting and not just mothering, but parenting, it, I think it's as much relevant for fathers, but I think. It's where emotional honesty, I think, can help juggle parenting and writing. Is in, I think it's really good to keep in our consciousness. And I think some of us do and some of us are not as good. But it's really important to think that as parents and writers, we actually have choices we need to make almost mm. on a daily basis. And but there's no right or wrong choices. So I know there's, there's so many ways to be a writer and a parent. So I chose the hard way of combining the two. Uh, because it works for me, because I needed to center myself. But I also know of uh, writers who choose not to write at all during the early years of their mm. And I think it's a wonderful choice because also we need, not just for the children, not just because they, there's life to live as well, but also because our creativity is a bit like soil. We do need to regenerate it sometimes. And sometimes this break can be very productive yeah. later. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with taking a break, is there, if you need oh. to for whatever reason. Well, it's a great chapter, Lee, and as I said, it is a fabulous book and we could talk all day about it, but <laughs> we'll have to wrap this one up now. So thank you very much and congratulations on The Writer Laid Bear. It's brilliant and really enjoyed it and I know there's a lot of listeners out there who are going to love it as well. This means a lot, Pamela. Thank you so much. Really love talking to you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts 
so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. (laughs) 